0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 8. Once again, as we return to episode 3 in the Perean and last Judean ministry of Jesus. Episode number 3, Christ, the light of the world. Verses 12 through 20, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) Something like that. Um, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They called him a liar. They called him a liar. The one whose name is faithful and true. And they called him a liar. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do uh, rejoice. You are truth. Your word is truth. We thank you, Father, that, that you are a God who communicates, who revealed your mind to us through the written word of God. We thank you for the, the freedom we have in our nation to assemble together this morning to receive instruction. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to preserve these freedoms. Um, we have a holiday this this week where we, our nation, uh, honors and recognizes the uh, the sacrifice that's been paid by our servicemen and women. But, Father, we realize that that's simply in, in the earthly terms, that they paid the price for our freedom. The reality is, is that your sovereign grace provision has continued to maintain this this nation as a land of freedom where your children can assemble together. And we want to praise you and give you the glory for what you have provided. Father, as we study the word this morning, we thank you that Christ is not a liar. He is the light of the world. He is the truth. And as we uh, humble ourselves and become more conformed to his image, we have uh, indeed the light of life to guide our steps. We thank you for that. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Last week, we spent a lot of time in the genitives. And I don't want to go back into that other than to summarize it for you and take you to the uh, the two realms of conclusion that we had. We did, under point 1, though, give you the survey of light messages in John. There are three that precede this one and three that follow this one. And um, those are the three that preceded it in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 5. Under point 2, we saw that there were three that follow in chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. This message, I am the light of the world, comes in chapter 8, and it is the centerpiece of seven light messages. It's almost as if the Gospel of John contains its own uh, menorah, contains its own candlestick with seven light messages throughout, and the middle stick, the middle stand of the of the uh, candlestick, is the I am the light of the world message. I kind of have come to appreciate that. Now, in our point three, we looked at some aspects of the genitive and all the different possible understandings that you have to consider, um, ten of them all together, to consider how do we handle these ofs? How do we handle the genitive in this verse? If we have the light of the world... Uh, what are we to understand in that? What, what is the nature of that of? Uh, specifically, what is the nature, what, what precise genitive are we looking at here for this light? Is this the light of the world because the world produces such amazing light? Is that what it's about? No, the world actually is in darkness. And when the light of the world comes into the world, the light provides the first illumination. And so that's what we give in the summary then our points B and C. Then when we say light of the world you can, if you want, if it helps your thinking, you can substitute the, the preposition for. This is the light which is for the illumination of those within the world, those that are within the otherwise dark world. And we do the same thing in English. The the lights here are the lights of the room. Uh, and it, it's not that the room produces light, but these are the lights that are designed to provide light for those within the room. And so we have similar expressions as well. That's what we do with light of the world. That is, it is for the world. But then when we talk about the light of life, again, we find ourselves in uh, having to examine the ten possible genitives and the recognition that there is a, a, a wide uh, realm of possible understandings. Because of the uh, the ambiguous nature of uh, of the genitive case and the and uh, really the tremendous flexibility that can be expressed, in this case we want to find out is is the light the light for the life? In other words, uh, when he says I am the light for life. You can take it that way. Or the light of life, you can take it that way too. And rather than draw a line in the sand and and start duking it out with people over the subjective versus objective genitive possibilities, um, you can make a case for both directions, as it were. On the screen, I listed my preference for the light which is from the source of eternal life. And the recognition that once we come to salvation, once we are born again and saved, then we possess... And I think the impact of this comes from the verbs that are used uh here in John eight twelve, where Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am, Ego Amy, I am the light of the world. He who follows me. Now that's the emphasis on the activity, on the following, on the on the uh active participation of the one who follows. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Again, will not walk stresses the activity of the individual but will have, and that's the ongoing possession of having the light of life. And that is equivalent to what we talk about in terms of having eternal life. I'm not going to receive eternal life when I die and go to heaven. I have eternal life right here, right now. And it's because I presently have eternal life as a possession. Because of that, I'm going to heaven when I die. All right, not the other way around. I don't receive it when I get to heaven because I have it. Angels are going to carry my soul to heaven when uh, the soul is loosed from the body of this dust. All right, so the light of the world and the light of the life. That's the promise that Jesus Christ uh, offers here. Now, the response is not very good. And we give that to you now in point four. You know, you would love for verse 13 to be a wonderful testimony of Revival and humility and acceptance and for the Pharisees to just fall on their face overjoyed with and overwhelmed with with the provision. But they're not. All right. The Pharisees ongoing and on growing rejection of Jesus message. And I phrased it that way for a purpose. It's ongoing in the sense that it already existed. It preceded this, but now it's continuing but it's also on-growing because the longer it continues, the more intense it becomes. The greater their, uh, their hatred develops. So the Pharisees' ongoing and on-growing rejection of Jesus' messages um, attempts, look what they attempt to do. They uh, attempt to dismiss his ministry as being illegitimate saying that we shouldn't even waste our time listening to you. You You're a sole, lone witness, cannot be verified, therefore should not even be given an audience. And that's their statement here in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, they have um, a point, sort of. You know, they're lawyers, so they have... Footnotes and they have references and they have case law they can point to verses in the in the Bible about um, the illegitimacy of a single witness for example in a, in a murder trial in a murder trial a single witness is not sufficient you have to have a minimum of two in order to put somebody to death all right that's not to say that a single witness is intrinsically false or that a single witness is you know, by definition, not right. it could be very right if there 's only one eyewitness to something happening. But what it means is that in order to affect the death penalty in order to put the offender to death, it cannot come on the, uh, the, by a single witness all right so it has nothing to do with the truthfulness of the witness the The, the requirement for multiple witnesses is only um, applicable as to the uh, as to the assigning of the punishment to the administration of the of the capital punishment so to say that a self-witness is, by definition, a liar or false is, uh, is wrong. And yet that's where they go. They, they want to point out that he is a sole witness and then say, because you're a sole witness, you're a liar. You don't have a true testimony. And obviously there's several logical fallacies at work here in, in this one verse. Um, of course, it's not true. We've already seen that there are multiple witnesses at work. And the the previous time he was in Jerusalem, hold your finger there, go back to chapter 5, because the very last time he was in Jerusalem was at Passover of uh, 31 A.D. This is now the fall of of 32, so it's been 18 months since he's been in town. But on the very previous time he was in Jerusalem, he had a message for them, laying out all of the witnesses that testified concerning him. And uh, it picks up in verse uh, 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And this is undoubtedly what they were picking up on. They were trying to use his own words against him. And yet by using his own words against them, what do they have to do? They have to ignore the rest of his words that followed this verse here in chapter 5. Because that if I alone um, has to understand that he is alone. And then he goes on to say, you know what, I'm not alone in this. There is another who testifies of me. I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true, and then he goes to lay out exactly how many fellow witnesses that he has. John the baptizer was a witness, in verses thirty three through thirty five. The miracles he performed were a witness, in verse thirty six. The God the Father's is witness, in verse thirty seven, and then in thirty eight, and then finally the scriptures themselves are a witness, in verse thirty nine. These testify about me. So how many more witnesses do you want? From John the Baptist, to the miracles, to God the Father, to the writings of Scripture at this point, 39 Old Testament books. That seems like a lot of witnesses. And so his statement about if I alone testify about myself, yes, he used those words, but then he immediately went on to say, and by the way, I've got at least 42 witnesses. John the Baptist, the miracles, God the Father, and 39 Old Testament books. All right. So they come along on his very next time. Okay, rescue your finger now. Go back to John 8. Uh, he comes along the very next time that he's back in Jerusalem again. And they want to try to use his words against him from the last time he was in town. But they only use a small part of what he had to say, ignoring the whole rest of it with all those other witnesses. So they say, you are testifying about yourself. And just like you said, your uh, testimony is not true. And so they want to just dismiss it. They want to absolutely dismiss the content. See, if you can throw out the whole uh, messenger, then you can ignore the message, right? That's what they're trying to do. That's why, by the way, uh, the, the generation we live in, they hate the Bible. They want to dismiss it as not being true, that, oh, well, it's just a collection of myths and legends and oral traditions that God handed down through the years and then finally were manipulated by the Roman Catholic Church and then given to us in this, in this big pack of lies. That's what they think the Bible's all about. And so if they can say, the Bible's not true, why should we listen to it? Then they can safely, they've sat up their conscience, and they can safely ignore all those pesky little things in the Bible that, that tell them that their behavior is, is, uh, is inappropriate, that their, their behavior actually violates the, the standards of, of the God of righteousness. And so that's, that's the philosophy. Point six, or point five. Their growing opposition becomes increasingly paterological. It's the repeated references to the Father that get these guys absolutely incensed. Paterology is the study of the Father. Pater and Lagos for paterology. Their growing opposition becomes increasingly paterological. Anytime teaching in a local assembly stresses the role of the Father... Conflict heats up. Conflict heats up. you got a whole string of verses in this chapter, and in chapter 7, and in chapter 8. I want you to notice the progression as John records it in his gospel. So the growing opposition becomes increasingly paterological. Back to chapter 7. Notice the context for verses 16 through 18. Then 28 through 30. We'll also grab verse 33 along the way and then we get into chapter 8 where we observe that increased progression in verses 16 through 20, 26 through 30, 37 through 47, verse 49 and also verses 53 through 56. Maybe it would have been simpler just to say chapter 7 and chapter 8, you know. But notice the string of verses and how it progresses. I, w- I want to I take the time to highlight this because it, it actually dovetails wonderfully with our recent uh, completed study in uh, angelology, in satanology, in the, the PMW classes where we're teaching in systematic theology. Remember what the adversary is doing. The adversary views himself as an alternative father. I will be like the most high God. And his whole program from way back before human time began was to be to stand in opposition to God the Father. Uh, a lot of people confuse it. They think that, that Satan is anti Christ. No, Satan is anti Father, and he is going to generate the Antichrist because God the Father generated the Christ. And so in order to be the counterfeit, the fraud, the alternative, and in his mind, the the improved, the new and improved father, he needs to give this world a new and improved Christ. And so any time doctrinal teaching ventures into realms of paterology, the adversary throws a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a, uh, a temper tantrum, maybe. He just throws a fit, absolutely goes berserk. All right. So let's look at these verses. Back to chapter 7 then. This actually is at the, uh, the feast of, uh, which was episode 1 in this outline, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, he went kind of undercover, low-key, very anonymous, until about the midpoint of the feast. He went up into the temple and he began to teach. And uh, we're not exactly told why, why he held off to the midpoint, what was really bugging him, probably because uh, he couldn't stand uh, all the, the watered-down teaching he was listening to for those days, and uh, couldn't control himself anymore. Got up and started teaching some real meat. And so the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, being such an idiot, having never been educated? And you've had the studies on tastes and, and the different terms that we've looked at. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. And he starts to bring the focus to the Father. All of John reveals the Father. No one has seen God any time, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so every chapter reveals the Father. Chapter 2 reveals the Father's house when he drives him out of the temple. Chapter 3, the Father's gift. Chapter 4, it's the Father every chapter, every every chapter in the Gospel of John. So... Here we have in chapter 7, by the way, it's the Father's teaching. If you want to memorize chapter titles in John in terms of the Father. So my teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. By the way, that's descriptive of everybody he's talking to here. All these Pharisees, all these Sadducees, they, they were teaching, but it was for their own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. And so you can observe that he's beginning to introduce the Father here in these verses. Down to verse 28. Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. He says, I know him. Because I'm from him, and he sent me. And they were attempting to seize him. See, this uh, references to the Father are not accepted very well. Verse 33, Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. I go to him who sent me. So, this is what kind of started it here. Then we get over to chapter 8, and I believe there's no break with this adulterous woman story. It doesn't matter. Anyway, he's still in Jerusalem. The setting is still the temple in Jerusalem whether or not there was a, a, a mourning with an adulterous woman or not. Then uh, the light of the world message starting in verse 12. But notice verse 16. And he's going to address their accusation that he's a self-witness. And he says, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and now now he starts to put a name to it. It's no longer just he who sent me, he who sent me. Now it's specifically the Pater, the father who sent me. My judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. And then he goes on to say, I, in verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And oh, by the way, that's what I said two chapters ago, or three chapters ago in chapter 5 when I was here last Passover. And they get pretty scornful about this. Uh, well, where is your Father? Okay. Okay. And they knew all about him. They knew his background. They knew about Joseph. They knew about Mary. They knew about the uh the discrepancy in the uh engagement time period and how the the actual marriage took place earlier than it was at first scheduled to take place. They knew about the baby that was born uh on uh December twenty fifth or whatever, you know, Christmas morning it was. We don't know. All right. They knew all about it. So when they say where is your father, it's kind of a loaded question. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. I'm going to outline that for you here in some points. I find it interesting is that there's a lot of believers that don't know the Father. They're not oriented to the Father in their Christian walk. And the reason being is that they don't truly know the Son. All right. Now they're saved. Don't get me wrong. They are saved. They're born again regenerate. But coming to know Jesus Christ is a lifelong process. It's like, um, can you imagine, we just had our wedding anniversary this week. Can you imagine uh, if I knew Sharon only to the same degree that I knew her in 1991? Well, how pathetic would that be? Goodness, it's been 17 years now. You think I probably should know her a little bit better, right? More, deeper. More, you know you know what I'm saying? Is this making any sense? Of course. I'm talking to wives this morning. They know what I'm talking about. I'll take a little extra time for the men that are here. Um, but see, this is what I'm talking about. How many believers do you know? I don't want to show a hands or anything, but you know them. I know them. And their intimacy with Jesus Christ is no deeper than it was the moment they passed from darkness into light. Because they have not occupied with Christ. They've not, they weren't, they're not abiding in His Word. They never have been. They were, they were told that all they needed to do was get saved, and then that's great. They're not, they're not going to go to hell when they die. They're going to go to heaven when they die. And they, they have not been in the Word. They haven't grown in grace and knowledge. So, and if they die as spiritual infants, they'll stand in the, at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. With a great big pile of wood, hay, and stubble. And everything else burned away. They themselves will be saved, yet so as through fire. But no intimacy. No knowledge. And so without an increasing knowing of Jesus Christ, it goes without saying that they have no knowing of God the Father. And that's what he speaks of here. Where is your father? Uh, This, by the way, comes back later with his disciples even, and Philip and Thomas and these guys. And they, and they wanted to say, well, you know, show us the Father. And he says, have I been with you so long? And you say, show me the Father. That comes up back in uh, chapter 14. All right. Then, um, so again, verse 19. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But boy, they sure wanted to. They attempted to. The Father did not permit it because the timing was not yet appropriate. God the Father controls the circumstances. Down to verse 26. I have many things to speak to, to, speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize he had been speaking to them about the Father. See, John gets it. He gets it now after decades. This gospel was written decades later, and John gets the paterology of what Jesus was trying to teach him back here in in, uh, 33 AD or 32 AD. So um, it goes on, verse 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And here we find one of the first and and most, if, if you learn nothing else about paterology, learn this. Paterology, the essence of it is a son living a life that's pleasing to his father. Jesus Christ was our example. Living a life that's pleasing to the father. And you're either going to please your heavenly father or... As a brood of vipers, you're going to please your father, the devil. That's where this chapter is headed, down in verse 44. So one of the first uh, key elements of paterology is the principle of pleasure, pleasing the father. We want to glorify Christ and please the father. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And I find that to be a great encouragement as well. I'm gonna—I think I even made a point out of that. Um, maybe not. I intended to. That the uh, his faithfulness to to stay on message, his faithfulness to glorify the Father in face of all this conflict, in spite of all the the adversaries prowling about, uh, actually bore a harvest. And uh, and many, not just a few, but many came to salvation here. And uh, I think that's I think we can glean some things out of that in terms of the effectiveness that a Bible teaching ministry can have when they stay on message, when they continue to to pursue the deep things of God, even though it's totally at odds with this world's message, even though it's at odds with our so-called friends. Right. The light and fluffy crowd. And, and this kind of teaching, um, just yesterday, or the other day, not yesterday, the other day I was talking to a fella, and, uh, you know, he likes Bible class, but so you, can go, you can really go too far with that. And, and I, I just think the bulk of, of American Christianity is, is in that light and fluffy mentality, and it breaks the heart. So I think that when a teacher like Jesus comes along or anyone that's going to be uh, oriented to the Father, that's going to be sticking to his guns and teaching the word, line upon line, precept upon precept, that's going to bear some fruit. It's going to stand out. All right, a few more verses down. Verse uh, 37. He says, I know, this is after he deals with some sin issues here and, and some things about being a slave to sin and so forth. And you don't want to be a slave, you want to be a son. He says in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. In other words, you're racially Jewish. You have a biological paternity that goes back to Abraham, but you're spiritually dead and you're not uh, walking in the light. You're Abraham's descendants yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you i speak the things which i have seen from, with my father therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father and boy he just draws a line of the sand right here doesn't he? he says i'm i'm proclaiming my father's message you're pursuing the things of your father and when he puts it in those terms uh that's the that's the confrontational nature of his message well that They don't exactly like that. (laughs) Verse 39. In fact, I haven't found a single thing here that the Pharisees did like. I guess some folks got saved there in verse 30, but I don't think they were the Pharisees. Um, So verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Well, yeah, he just said that. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children... It's kind of a doubtful, skeptical. You're not really, but okay. If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. What did Abraham do? He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He obeyed when God said, leave your house, your father's house, your relatives, go to the land of which I show you. You want to do the deeds of Abraham? You claim to be Abrahamites? All right. Do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. And uh, Abraham didn't do that. (laughs) All right, Abraham didn't do that. So you claim to be his sons. Do what he did and don't do what he what he didn't do. All right, um, you were doing the deeds of your father. He comes back to it again. This is where I think their little conspiracy gets unveiled a bit. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. Right? Pretty strong language. Not anymore, of course. But let me explain something and folks here that are uh older, you know what I'm talking about. There were previous generations where illegitimate birth was uh shameful. Where to be called a uh, a bastard was 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 one of the most hideous things that could be could be thrown at you. Whether it was true or not, <laughs> and if it was true it was even worse. And it was a mark of shame. Now there's nothing wrong with it and High school girls can have uh, they got nurseries now in, in the schools and daycare and all kinds of things as uh, culture embraces the uh, the carnality. Well, uh, we were not born at fornication. We have one father, God, and, and we understand the, all the opposition research they've done. They 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 thoroughly under, understood. Or otherwise, how could they accuse him of being born of fornication? This is this is an insult against Jesus and his own parentage, his own upbringing. You know, I mean, it's not. And this was part of the work assignment that Joseph and Mary had to accept. They knew that they'd be the object of scorn. They knew that they'd be uh, that they had that they had uh, their parents had contracted for their marriage. Okay. This is very biblical. This is not just some weird FLDS cult out in West Texas somewhere where parents arrange the marriages. All right, The purchase price was agreed to. The bride price, the dowry was all established by the fathers of the young man and the young woman. The engagement period began. They didn't call it an engagement period, but the betrothal period began by which they were considered legally married but the ceremony not yet complete, and so the consummation did not yet take place, and typically they re- remained in their parents' household. And uh, But then all of a sudden, instead of being allowed to run its course of the entire year, um, things got moved up really quickly. And they actually finalized the process shorter than the one-year betrothal period, and they went off to Bethlehem and registered with the census as husband and wife, and baby gets born, and... And, uh, oh, hasn't been a whole year yet since the, since the, uh, betrothal, since the contract was signed and the, and the, uh, dowry was paid and all of that. Okay. No different than today when, when today you can look at a marriage certificate in a certain month and you look at a birth certificate in a certain month and you kind of work it out on your fingers that no, there's not nine months in between there. And so it becomes common knowledge. Hey, guess what? This pregnancy preceded the, the, uh, Marriage certificate. Okay. Well, that's what they've done. And they, uh, they're going to use this to criticize Jesus. And um, all they're really doing is simply communicating their own frustrations. So Jesus said to them, if God were your father, and this is even more dubious than his previous, if you're Abraham's children, right? If God were your father, you would love me. And all of that communicates as a second-class condition. It's not true, and so they don't. God is not their Father, and they don't love Him. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not come on my own initiative, but He sent me. In other words, God the Son, pre-existent from all eternity past, in complete harmony with God the Father, in agreement with the divine decrees and the Father's plan, Entered into the world, he's not just a man; he is the God-made flesh. Every cult on earth denies that, but this is the message. He goes on to say, "Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. They don't have ears to hear. It's a spiritual message that, in their unregenerate state, they uh, they are not capable of discerning this truth." Then he says, he lays it right out there: "Your your father is the devil." You are of your father, the devil. You are a brood of vipers. You, you pursue the course of this world. You're walking according to the course of this world after the, uh, the ruler of the powers of the air, he that is working, the spirit that is working among the sons of disobedience. You have your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Remember, it is a paterological principle to please your father. And that's true for born-again believers. We are expected to please our heavenly father, but it's also true for unbelievers. It's part of that fallen nature in Adam, and it's a part of the cosmos philosophy that permeates this world. Cosmos philosophy is please the God of this age. They want to be pleasing to their father. A couple of features of that. What pleases him more than anything else? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. It's, uh, that right there is, is pretty unique. The pairing up of murder and lying. The pairing up of truth and life. God, of course, is a God of truth. He's a God of life. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, that, that matching up of truth and life or lying and murder is, uh, is inescapable. And, and what gets me, though, is how the, again, philosophy of this cosmos has separated those. Right? Right? Okay, they'll admit, yeah, murder's bad. But lying, that's not so bad. Everybody lies, right? Everybody that came to President Clinton's defense, oh, come on, everybody lies, and it was just about sex. You know, he was trying to spare his wife and his daughter any embarrassment, blah, blah, blah. Know, he was trying to spare himself embarrassment. But human thinking separates out murder, bad, right? Lying, well, okay, not that bad. It, yeah, okay, it's bad, but it's not that bad. It's not as bad as murder. What, do you think I'm a murderer or something? The Bible actually pairs them up. The Bible pairs them up. Both are attacks against the essence and nature of God. God is a God of truth. Any lie is an attack against his very nature. He is also the source of life, and which is why Genesis 9 had the uh, capital punishment put in there, because any murder is an attack on the essence of God as the source of life. So uh, he was a liar from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. And uh, and this goes on. The last little bit of it here, down to verse 49. They said, you're a Samaritan and a demon-possessed Samaritan. (laughs) Did we not say rightly you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? I guess today we'd say you're an Aggie. And then we'd say, oh, and, and you're a demon-possessed Aggie, right? Yankee. Yankee, okay, Yankee. That's true, we probably have some Aggies. I'm sorry about that. When it, who was it that told me, uh, somebody gave me a good Aggie joke the other day, about how every Aggie goes to heaven. You knew that, right? Every single Aggie goes to heaven. It's because none of them ever reach the age of accountability. Anyway, so he says, um, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. You dishonor me. Remember, we're supposed to glorify Jesus Christ. That's what pleases the father. The father's purpose from Alpha to Omega is to glorify Jesus Christ. And if we conduct our lives to the glory of Jesus Christ, then we are fellow workers with God the father. Because God the Father is glorifying Jesus Christ eternally. But when you and I choose to conduct our lives in a manner contrary to the glory of Jesus Christ, then we are no longer co-workers, fellow workers with God the Father. In fact, just the opposite. We are working against God the Father. He's building up. We're tearing down. And we put ourselves in that adversarial position. Friendship with the world is hostility enmity adversarial position against god the father so i honor my father you dishonor me down to verses 53 through 56 the last bit of this chapter here when they say surely you're not greater than our father abraham who died the prophets died too whom do you make yourself out to be (laughs) has he been saying for the last two and a half years Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And uh, you have not come to know him, but I know him, and I say that I do not, uh, and if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And by the way, he saw it only prophetically and only from a distance. He died in faith, not seeing it manifest on the earth. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? By the way, that's a little bit of a side issue. Um, but, but Jesus was, I think he's, he was older than a lot of folks give him credit for. When he came to be baptized, the, the, the expression there that people confuse, they say that, he, well, he was 30 years of age. No, it says that he was either about 30 years of age or he was at least 30 years of age. And having met the minimum, he could have been 30, 31, 32, 37. The only requirement was that he would be at least 30 years of age. And uh, the idiom there, when he was baptized, bears that out. If he was born in 4 B.C. or 6 B.C., as it were, and he dies in 33 A.D., then uh, he's in his upper 30s, not his lower 30s, at the uh, crucifixion, if not 40. See, I think if he was in the early 30s, then they would have said, You're not yet 40. Have you seen Abraham? But instead they say, You're not yet 50. And and you've seen Abraham? I think their choice of 50 rather than 40 there indicates that he, he was uh, older than we sometimes give him credit for. All right, no extra charge for that. That wasn't really the point I was making here. We see the opposition is ongoing and it's on growing. It's getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think they're getting more and more unhinged. That their uh, arguments are getting less and less rational and, and clearly it's becoming more and more emotional. They're They're invested in this. And it's no longer a rational process. It's a demonic process. They are of their father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Realize that, that he is the motivation in their soul for putting Jesus to death. He was the motivation in Cain's soul for putting Abel to death. So this is their increasing opposition. Point six. Jesus denies being a sole self-witness. But he points out the irony Of his qualifications to be a sole self-witness. I love verse 14 here. Jesus denies being a sole self-witness. Obviously, all these other witnesses. The baptizer, the miracles, the father, the scriptures... He denies being a sole self-witness, but points out the irony of his qualifications to be a sole self-witness. Even if he is, he's still true. Because he's uniquely qualified to testify. He's the only person in the history of the universe, he's older than the universe, he's the only person in the history of the universe Walking the earth to be able to testify to where he came from, who sent him, and why he's here. Nobody else in the temple, in Jerusalem, in Israel, on the planet, on this day, is qualified to testify to all of the events that he, that he knows, that he observed. All right, He is uniquely suited. So he says, even if I testify about myself... My testimony is true. Isn't that the irony of it all? For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know either where I come from or where I'm going. That's a neat uh, uh, paradox there. Point seven. Jesus also denies being a judge. He also denies executing a judicial function. He says, I'm not here to judge. Verse 15 You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. I'm not here to judge. Now, Second Advent, oh yeah. Second Advent, he's doing a lot of judging. He's going to judge on the battlefield and he's going to judge on a throne. In between the battlefield and the throne, he's going to judge in the wilderness. But he's going to judge on the battlefield. He's going to judge in the wilderness, the nation of Israel, purging the rebels and bringing the faithful into the kingdom. He's going to judge on the throne, the sheep and goat judgment, the Gentile nations separated right and left. There's a lot of judgment going to take place at second advent. First advent, he didn't come to judge. He came to save. But he goes on, even if I do judge. <laughs> the same language. The, you know, even if. Point seven, Jesus denies executing a judicial function, but points out the irony of his qualifications to do so. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that funny? Sometimes we can find a little bit of humor in what this world is doing, right? The world that mocks us and thinks that we're the, we're the idiots, that we're just the, the buffoons clinging to our, isn't that the word clinging? Clinging to our guns and our Bibles and our religion. Okay? That we're just so simple-minded, we still believe that the, the Sunday-school Jesus stories and the Bible stories and about creation and all that, we haven't yet joined the modern world into the full science of uh, Darwinian evolution or any of the, the Big Bang or any stuff like that. And isn't that funny? We're the only ones qualified to know the truth. That the one who created gave a written record of that creation. And we are the ones uniquely suited, equipped, prepared, qualified to handle that message that the creator gave. So we have a little bit of a parallel ourselves with Jesus in, in both of these points. Uh, point six, where he denied being a sole self-witness, and yet he was qualified to do so. In a point seven, where he denies being a judge but he's qualified to do so. We're, we're qualified to judge this world. We're going to judge this world. If we try to get started on that today, though, we're a little bit ahead of the game. And don't even get me fantasizing about that because I would love to start judging the world today. There's a whole lot of things I would love to fix. I'd like to grab hold of a whole... Now, see, I'm starting already. All right. (laughs) He is suited, and he will someday. You judge according to the flesh. In other words, your whole approach is human, your whole approach is temporal, your whole approach is finite and earthly. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. And he goes on. to uh, describe these other matters about the law. The law does indeed require... And the reason why, by the way, is because of the, the finite limitations of human uh, ability to discern truth and why you need the multiple witnesses to corroborate the, the truth of a matter. Believe me, folks, in the, in the millennium, we will not need a trial by jury because the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe will know the truth of the matter. And, and, and we're not going to be stuck in a condition where, well, we know he's guilty, but we don't have any lawfully seized evidence in order to prove it in court to a jury and so forth. All right. Pick an example. I don't, you know, there's people absolutely convinced OJ's guilty. People absolutely convinced, oh, no, he was framed. Right. I'm not omniscient. I don't know. I have suspicions just because I'm a naturally suspicious person, but I don't know. Like these polygamists, are they guilty? Probably. I'm sure they're guilty of something. We're all sinners. We're all guilty of something. But do they have legal evidence to prosecute a crime? Want to be fine in the millennium where uh, uh, guilty parties won't skate on a technicality? They're not going to have any maggot judges working for him anyway. They won't be there. I'm back to fantasizing again. All right. He denies executing a judicial function. We may find out that O.J. was completely innocent. And, and Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Every one of us is going to owe him an apology when we get to glory. All right. Jesus, point eight, we can wrap this up here with eight and nine. Point eight, Jesus claims God the Father for his validation. And he does so twice, both in the witness testimony and the judicial function. It's interesting because we've got both sides of the courtroom here. The witnesses that are on the stand and the judge that's on the bench. And they're criticizing him for both areas, for being a false witness or being a corrupt judge. And he says, no, I'm a perfect witness. I'm also a perfect judge. Jesus claims God the Father for his validation in both witness testimony and judicial function. We see that uh, his judgment is true. He's not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. All right, some of you are still writing. I know I got kind of wordy on these. Jesus claims God the Father for his validation in both witness testimony and judicial function. You see the uh, judicial function in verse 16 where the Father is his validation. Then in 17 and 18 here we've got the uh, witness testimony. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I find it interesting. He calls it their law. Even in your law. It's, it's really his law, isn't it? But what did they do to it in the meantime? They twisted it. They perverted it. They added to it. They, 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 they morphed it into this legalism monstrosity of, of, of filth. It's like he doesn't even want to claim it anymore. But even in their law, plus his own law, but even in their law, The testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. He does every single time that he performs a miracle. It's the Father's testimony. It's the credentials of his legitimate ministry. All right. And then finally, I think this is interesting. Why are they so ignorant? The Pharisees' ignorance of God the Father and God the Son Indicated their lack of divine fellowship. Indicated their lack of divine fellowship. It may well be that among this crowd, there were regenerate individuals. It may be, as I discussed under the the possible childhood salvation of the Apostle Paul, it may be that among these Pharisees, There uh, are some regenerate individuals that got saved before they seeped themselves in the legalism of the Pharisee religious structure. Whether they have a relationship or not, I guess we could debate. I think the statement you are of your father, the devil, is pretty indicative that they don't have that relationship, that they they still have the the devil for, for parentage. Um, I think that a believer can be held captive by the devil, but I would not use the devil's parentage language for a uh, a born-again believer. And that's what happens here. But whether they have a relationship or not is, I guess, is debatable. Whether they have fellowship or not is beyond dispute. They do not have fellowship with the Father. They do not have fellowship with the Son. They do not know the Father or the Son. And the idea of knowing, again, is that intimacy of regard, that intimacy of fellowship, to truly know somebody. We can say that we know President Bush, but we know who he is anyway. If we if he walked in the room, we would know that that's who it was. But do we know him? Do we know him, the person? Do we know his soul? Do we know his... his uh, fears his wishes his dreams his we don't know him don't know him at all we know who he is it's a big difference and so they do not know the father they do not know the son and that is the indication of their lack of divine fellowship remember from first John our fellowship is with the father and with the son what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now John's writing to believers, but he's writing to believers that need to develop this fellowship. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I pointed out, I think it's a minority of believers that truly have fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. Yet that's the basis for our fellowship with one another. If we're going to have fellowship with one another, it happens because believer A has fellowship with the Father and the Son. Believer B has fellowship with the Father and the Son. And because believer A has that fellowship upwards and believer B has that fellowship upwards, believers A and B together can have fellowship with each other. That's the only reason. That's the basis for it. And uh, when that's not happening then there's no fellowship. There's no concord. How can light have concord with darkness? What harmony hath Christ with Belial? If you've got believer A in fellowship with the Father and the Son, but believer B is walking in this world, friendship with the world, living in carnality or doing whatever in his own pursuit of selfishness, he doesn't have fellowship with the Father and the Son. All right? So how do they have concord with each other? They don't. They absolutely don't. But in the first circumstance I described... You could have that fellowship even if there is zero in common between believers A and B. I mentioned that at Hugh Hatley's funeral. I had virtually nothing in common with Colonel Hugh Hatley, nothing whatsoever. <laughs> zero. I couldn't find one thing I had in common with with uh, this tremendous hero man I respected, born in the 20s and veteran of. Depending how you count them, three wars, four wars, five wars, six wars, and uh, Air Force versus Army, Commission Officer versus Enlisted, right? Any other, any other uh, standard you want to, you want to put out there, from North Carolina, of all places, versus West Coast, uh, whatever. All right, nothing in common except our fellowship with God the Father and with God the Son. And because of that, uh, the fellowship was possible between he and I. All right, the next uh, episode will take us into chapter 9. We actually have a whole string of Gospel of John uh, episodes. And if you look at your... Harmony. I don't have a harmony with me up here, but if you look at your harmony of the Gospels, you'll see that we've got a string of messages coming up in the Gospel of John. We've been in chapter 7, chapter 8, we're moving on to chapter 9. It'll be a little bit before we even get back to a synoptic Gospel. But uh, in chapter 9 is the man born blind, and, and there's some funny, funny verses in here. I, I laugh every time I read it. and um, So we'll uh, we'll tackle that beginning next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. If we hear a trumpet between now and then, uh, then I'm not teaching Bible class. That's uh, We'll have better things to do. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for our time together in the Word of God. And I thank you for a lampstand where uh, teaching is a priority, where prayer is a priority. I thank you that we can come together and lift up uh, one another and fellow believers around this country and around the world. We do lift up the Schmidt family and, and uh, the, the believers at Gulf Coast Bible Church and Sweeney and praying, Father, that this week would be a, a special time of of intimacy and togetherness and comfort one to another and that uh, the sweetness and fragrance of memories can be uh, the joy of, of the blessing even in the midst of the tears and the sorrow, Father, that as these things take place. Father, I pray for Emil. Uh, he's Got to get in to see a doctor this afternoon if he can. Uh, the, the trouble with his eye is, is continuing and getting worse, and he's uh, he's especially concerned even that he'll be physically able to to stand and and preach the funeral message this Saturday. So Father, that's in your hands too, and and I do pray for that. I thank you for Eva's testimony, her faith, um, the impact that she had already has had, and will continue to have in uh, in the days and the years ahead. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.